This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Our guest this week is Chris Anderson, who's the founder and CEO of 3D Robotics. It's the largest drone maker in North America and uh, a real pioneer in the process of putting drones into the hands of individuals. Welcome, Chris. Thanks. Good to be here, Chris. Are we still calling them drones? We are. We're embracing the word. Um, Drones, I mean, so people used to correlate drones with the military, but Mm -hmm. they also used to correlate the internet with the military Mm -hmm. or GPS with cruise missiles. And so this happens. And so I'm I'm going all, you know, swords to plowshares on this one. Drones is a is a McLuhan McLuhan-esque sense, a hot word. People People resonate with it. Sometimes they, you know, they, they they bring baggage with it. But you know, you put a million consumer drones in the air, and they hopefully they'll forget about the predators. Um, so yeah, drones are autonomous. They're the flying robots. They, uh, as distinct from RC aircraft that you have to pilot, drones ideally can fly themselves. Big drones or small drones? I like the small drones. <laughs> there's a, a from a regulatory perspective, there's a, there's a, a category of under two kilograms, which falls into what's called the micro as opposed to the small mm-hmm. uh, drones. And um, uh, these are designed, you know, to have minimal kinetic energy. And so they, you know, they, uh, they're, they're easy to carry, they're safe to use, they can't do a lot of damage. And um, that's, you know, I think that that's kind of like the Wi-Fi equivalent in the same way hmm. that Wi-Fi was, you know, was allowed to sort of roam free because it was kind of had mm-hmm. his blocked off space, low power. You know, can listen as well as talk, so it was you know, sort of self deconflicting. Um, you know, small drones have many of those characteristics. Mm-hmm. Say it, it is kind of the open spectrum, if you will, of, of aerospace. Cool, cool. So you mentioned regulation. The FAA is making everyone register uh, their drones now, right? What are you What are you seeing there? What do you think of that? Well, first of all, um, I'm kind of amazed how many people actually did it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I don't know, what was that, number 400,000 people or something like that? Like, in, I mean, yeah. you know, I don't think that's, I think it's more people than signed up for Obamacare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's kind of stunning. Um, Is it even enforceable? I mean, in, in practice? The FAA doesn't really have an enforcement arm, um, uh, but it, but the point is that they made it easy enough. The website kind of worked. It took, mm-hmm. it took about two minutes. It was it put $5 in your credit card, but, you know, oh, well. And, uh, you know, we, we can make it even easier by having it automatic, you know, that mm-hmm. just you, you log into our app and it just automatically registers you. Um, I think, you know, um, the intention here was not to, um, you know, to, to track what you do. The intention was if, you know, one of these, you know, is, let's say, spotted in, you know, the JFK landing pattern mm-hmm. and, you know, they, they, they call up us drone makers and say, um, who was flying? We should be able to know mm-hmm. because that was naughty. They shouldn't do that. If it lands in the White House, then they should sort of say, well, where's it? <laughs> now, of course, the people who would land drones in the White House, by and large, are not the people who yeah. would register and, <laughs> right, and right, put right. the sticker on on board. But nevertheless, um, you know, so bad actors aren't stopped by this. But accidental, you know, what we call mass jackery, mass jackassery, rather, <laughs> accidental mass jackassery, which is to say that, you know, that we made drones too easy to fly. So now people don't have to go through this long training process mm-hmm. that used mm-hmm. to and, you know, learn the rules of the road. I mean, it's so easy to fly that people don't actually know what safe to fly means. Yeah. And so 
between us, sort of, you know, along with that registration is a conscious responsibility that comes with it. We also have training programs built into the apps, flight simulators, and then we have a little map that, that, that shows you where it's safe to fly. So all these things are designed to basically make people aware that safe flight is a thing and mm-hmm. that they have to take some responsibility and hopefully encourage better behavior. So it seems like a reasonable thing then for the growth of the uh, industry so that you, you yeah. can sort of, uh, you know, head off the concerns of, of detractors uh, who would say that these things are dangerous altogether. Yeah, it's somewhere between like a ham radio license and a driver's license, which is mm. to say, you know, there's a, a car's potentially dangerous, a ham radio, I suppose, back in the days, you know, radios were potentially dangerous. And it used to be they made you like learn Morse code and then it mm-hmm. got to be, I mean, I haven't done it recently, but I think you can just go online and do a little quick test like a driver's license test. And it's not designed to, you know, to, to actually, you know, you know, force you to go through a long training process. It's just designed to make you mindful. That mm-hmm. you have responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, to, so to go back uh, a little bit in, in in kind of the context in which you founded 3D Robotics, um, you moved over from Wired magazine, mm-hmm. where you had been the editor in chief, to do it. What did you see in the uh, in the environment at the time for making drones, for making electronics that mm-hmm. uh, made this seem like a, a feasible business? Sure. Um, so. Uh, I've only been CEO of 3DR for for three years, but the community, the project started in 2007. And uh, 2007 was just the year. Um, You know, there was a – in retrospect, it wasn't clear in 2007 that it was the year. But in retrospect, that was the year, and you know this better than anybody, that that was the year that hardware changed. There was a – you know, you use your metaphor. There was a there was a disturbance in the force. Uh, you know, a signal in the ether. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, a black right. turtleneck on a stage. In, in, yeah. Indeed. So it was An it was a, well. Now you're you're jumping all the way to the punchline. <laughs> okay. which is, I didn't know that the iPhone was in fact the dry, the forcing function of the new hardware renaissance. But you know what I knew is that um, Lego Mindstorms. T- you know, NXT was really cool, and it seemed to have sensors in it. Well, mm-hmm. it had sensors in it and an ARM processor, and it was kind of amazing that you could get sensors in a toy. And and other people n- discovered that same year that the week controller was kind of cool and and there's the Fitbit guys and they're like mm-hmm. what else what's in there so accelerometer what else could I do with it you know put it a wearable um, some people discovered 3D printing that year that was RepRap some people discovered Arduino you know open source computing that was that was that year some people discovered the maker movement you know maker fairs and make magazine mm-hmm. which was more or less that year um, and you know all of us kind of all we all had our own little entry points but you know once you got into it and you realized they're all intertwined it was you know it was the combination of desktop prototyping of sensors of open hardware um, and, you know, the web's community-based innovation model, open source, they all came together and then you add, con- you know, they add cloud manufacturing, the ability to just kind of, you know, click on some links and get factories in China to work for you. And that created the maker movement. It created, you know, what would later turn into the Kickstarter phenomenon, Indiegogo phenomena. And, um, you know, created um, first, in my case, a prototype, a, mm-hmm. a Lego drone that I do with my kids. Uh, then a community, DIY Drones, which I think is now the biggest robotics community in the mm-hmm. world. We just hit 75,000 um, users. Yay. Wow. Um, and then um, and then the community created technology. And then the technology created demand for that technology to be de- like, turned into a product. Mm-hmm. And then I, I met a guy online, Jordi Munoz, who became my, <laughs> my, my co-founder, a 19-year-old from Tijuana. And that turned into a factory. And the factory turned into revenues. And you know, eventually, um, yeah, you know, after this organic process, we had a real company and we took venture capital. And today we're... Today we're pretty big. So at the time, as you saw this, you know, coming up, did you have the sense that uh, aerial photography might be kind of the killer app? Did not occur to me. Um, you know, I'm I'm I came at this the way a lot of you know I'm sure the way Jobs and Wozniak came at the Homebrew Computing Club, which is like 
this chip. What what is this chip? What yeah. could I do with this mm-hmm. chip? It's really sweet. I yeah, I, I, sh- I should do yeah. something with this chip. That was that was as far as my process went, which is to sort of say sensors. I could. What should I do with it? Robotics? Huh? Yeah. My kids are really bored. What would be more interesting than a rolling robot? A flying robot? Google flying robot. Add an extra D. Uh, yeah, well, exactly. Flying, you know, oh, oh, a flying robot's a drone. Who, who, who knew? What's an? What's a drone? Oh, it's got an autopilot. Huh? What's an autopilot? I mean, it's literally. It was just sort of like you know, there was this, uh, there was this existence proof of a cool thing, and I was just trying to figure out what it could do. So, the, you know, the end point was get a robot to fly. It didn't inco- involve any practical applications whatsoever. Now, you know, two weeks later, it occurred to me, or not occurred to me, more searching revealed that you know, one thing you can do with a flying robot is take pictures and you know, put camera on, and then it's like, oh, well. Once you take lots of pictures, you can stitch them together and create maps. And that, that, that was another two weeks. And then it's like, oh, well, you know, then you can actually plan missions so it'll do it automatically. And then it's like, oh, okay. So I actually was like, all sorts of silly um, things were going on. So I, I was like, you know, so what's the analogy here? Well, we're basically, you know, going to digitize the planet you know, the physical world, the way the internet has digitized the digital world. And I said, well, it's kind of like a crawler, like a web crawler. You can mm-hmm. see how long it was. So, so I actually was like registering geo crawler and things like that. So I, I really <laughs> nice. thought it is like, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like Google, which is like drones will be the, um, the feelers, hmm. the sensors, the sort of the, 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 the limbs of the internet and the internet will be the brains of the drones. And, mm. You know, today we call that cloud robotics and and all that, and it's largely played out. You know, in between there was this whole sort of GoPro video, you know, um, phenomena, which which um, was not actually one of my drivers. And and ultimately, you know, we we started with the you know the DIY kind of robotics thing, and we ended up now in the commercial space. So we're largely focused on commercial space. And, and so it started with like you know flying robots with cameras, and it ends up with flying robots with cameras, and you know still cameras taking pictures, digitizing. And in between there was that whole sort of there was the current mode we're in where, right now, which is the sort of you know democratization of Hollywood, the you know the the cinema, cinematography um, and the tools that allow regular people to take to tell their story with aerial video. But that was kind of a wasn't wasn't where I where I started, and you know may not be where we end up, mm-hmm. but that's where we are now. Yeah, well, it was it's, platform first, sort of, and then and then applications. Yeah. Or like, what are some of the other emerging segments for drones? I mean, I guess there's the whole deliveries thing, which is happening. Yeah, d- deliveries sort of happening. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a hard problem because um, you know you have you have the kind of the one thing you know about robots is that you should keep them away from people, mm-hmm. right? And yet the one thing you know about delivery is that you're delivering to, to, yeah. to people. So, lo- so you know, delivery functions are actually, you know, starting off in a, in a kind of, um, you know, B2B context, which is del- warehouse to warehouse or warehouse to designated drop-off zone. Or interestingly, in China and Australia, their um, delivery is solving, um, you're not actually reaching the most profitable people, you're reaching the least profitable people because there's these, the postal mm-hmm. services have these obligations to ser- serve rural customers. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's just one of those mandates you got, but it's crazy expensive to serve rural Send customer. a person out yeah. there. Not just the last mile, the last hundred miles. The last hundred miles, exactly. So, you know, so so interestingly, targeting the worst customers um, is is what is is a surprising application of delivery. But to answer your question, the the the, the big and exciting ones are are in the, at least in the commercial space, are um, things where um, so we have the you know you're you're basically closing the loop, which you're digitizing. So as we know, you can only manage what you can measure. And so on the internet, we manage, you know, we can measure clicks and key, mm-hmm. key presses, et cetera. In the physical world, it's quite hard to manage to, to measure a lot of the world. So satellites are too high, two-thirds of the planet's covered by got by clouds at all times. Um, the ground is too low, you know, street views only on the streets, et, et cetera. So the um so we don't have good ways to digitize the planet on a kind of a regular cadence. 
margins or ch- and cheaply. And so, you know, when you look at the biggest industries in the world, and they are in order, I think I've got the order right, but it's agriculture is number one, construction, interestingly, is number two, hmm. energy, insurance. All those industries are industries that are starved of data. So agriculture is crop mapping and being able to being able to you know to detect you know where you want to put more fertilizer or less. Um, with construction sites, it's simply just monitoring the construction. You, you, you survey the construction site so you can manage it with the same tools, the digital tools used to design it. Anything where you would normally send a guy up with a hard hat to look Ab- at something and absolutely. put a tape measure or, on it. Or, yeah, yeah if, if you could, or, or, or more often, you just can't do it at all because it's not affordable. Um, insurance is things like roof inspection after damage. Um, um, energy is things like solar panel inspection, power lines, et cetera. Then you have things like just, just I mean, just take... Industries we never think about cell tower inspection. Apparently, it's a six yeah. billion dollar industry. They're Whoa. required by law to inspect the cell towers, and like it's like one of the most dangerous professions in the world because people like when you traverse the pole, it's super mm-hmm. dangerous. You're on ladders, cherry pickers. You know, people really should not be doing ground, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the much bigger opportunity yeah. then. And that's that's. Are you starting to see those applications um, pick up in real volume? Yeah, so there's been three sort of gating factors. One of them is the product readiness. Um, so now these people aren't like RC pilots. They don't want to fly this stuff. They just want to push a button and get it done. So that's a lot of autonomy, sense and avoid, you know, turning these things so that having the data go directly to the cloud rather than coming out on SD cards and all this kind of stuff. So, so building enterprise-grade drones that are that are easy to use. They have all the kind of virtues of the consumer drones, but, you know, have enterprise software and are tapped into the Autodesk, you know, tool chain, things like that. So that's that's been, that's that's one gating factor. And we're pretty close to there on um, Actually, in, in the beginning of March, we're going to announce our, announce our first project product rather with uh, Autodesk on hmm. on uh, scanning construction sites. Oh, cool! Nice. Um, the uh, the second barrier has been uh, regulation. Uh, so, in a weird sort of sort of you know uh, through the looking glass um, um, as. Uh, tweak and uh, sort of glitch in regulations, um, recreational use is allowed, but commercial use requires all sorts of FAA permissions, like certificates of authorization, section 333s, et cetera. So my children can fly drones, but trained professionals cannot. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. It's, now, there's reasons for this. It yeah. largely has to do with the fact that, you know, that it's very easy to send a set of cease and desist to a company, but it's hard to send one to my children. Mm-hmm. Also, that the recreational use was limited to, you know, under 400 feet, visual line of sight, et cetera. And so anyway, you regulate who you can regulate. And, and so so commercial use has been, there's been real high, high barriers to entry. Among other things, you need a pilot's license hmm. to use drones commercially. That's going to stop in, in March as well. There's okay. a new reg um, that will require instead more, more of a kind of a, a, a training and you know, process where you get certified as an operator, but you don't need to be a pilot. Once you get certified, will you be able to go into some restricted areas, like over stadiums? Uh, no, you'll, like you'll, you're, the other restrictions still apply. Visual line of sight, under 400 feet, you know, no flying over over these things. But at least, you know, which you can do right now recreationally, but at least you'll be able to make money for mm-hmm. it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the third barrier has been simply just um, uh, the sales cycle in enterprises is, 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 is slower. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody, you know, companies don't want drones. They want a solution. It's like, if I push this button, will it save me money? Well, in until until they're convinced of that, they're they're not going to buy it. And so fun just, doesn't come into the calculation. Exactly. So yeah. turning drones into like solutions is is uh, is a process, and it requires understanding exactly what the problem is. And even in agriculture, you know, rice is not cows, is not corn. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, to just know enough about each industry to turn this. So like, oh, drone finds drone finds lost cow. You know, it's a lost cow finder. It's not a drone. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. that's uh-huh. that's just that's what it takes. So thinking back over the product line that you've developed over the last few years, um, you know, early on the the models that you released looked like they they sort of appealed to the hackers, to the people who were members of the community. Uh, there are some DIY aspects to you know assembling it yourself, configuring it, learning how to fly it. 
your latest models are are very polished. I mean, mm. right before we sat down to record this, uh, we, we went out on the roof and you demonstrated some mm. really impressive autopilot features. Mm. On Solo. Is that essential for the, the consumer market or do, are you doing that in part to show sort of the bigger enterprises that this yeah. kind of thing is, is possible? Uh, uh, both. And it's and it's sort of in, in, in sequence, um, one and the next. So, um, so, you know, we, there's three phases of this industry. There's the DIY phase and that's how I got started. And then, you know, as, um, as the kind of core technology, as we got these things to fly pretty well, then the barrier was just ease of use. They were just too complicated, too hard tool chains. And I mean, you know, really, I've been through every step. Like, I remember the big day that we decided, you know what, we are going to not make you solder. That was, hmm. a, that was a big thing. <laughs> oh, wow. And they yeah. were like, you know what? We're not going to make you compile. We're going to yeah, ship yeah. this code pre-compile. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's been yeah, a long road. binary. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but, but <laughs> so initially- the... stickers on bags was the yeah. thing. <laughs> right, right, right. But so initially, the market that you were addressing was a market that was largely people who were willing to solder. Ab absolutely. Then then the next, then then the, once these things actually worked, then the next generation come along and sort of say, whoa, that's awesome. It's way too hard. I don't know anything about that. Can you just like make it, like put it in a box and have it press a button? And, and, and you know, to their credit, uh, DJI, our, our our Chinese competitor, they they nailed that with the the Phantom, which was actually interesting. It is not designed as a product; it was designed as a training tool huh. for the people buying the big Hollywood, you know, the big cinema um, copters. Oh, interesting! And it turned out that people actually wanted it because it was easy and, and, and inexpensive, et cetera. So that so that kind of revealed that the consumer that was the consumer electronics phase, mm -hmm. and now mm -hmm. it's like, oh wow, okay, polished, easy to use, sold in Best Buy, et cetera, and that's the phase we're in right now. Um, and then and then then you get the next phase, which is the consumerization of the enterprise phase. So, you know, we sort of had like the you know, bag of parts, then we had the iPhone, then we have the iPhone with the app store connected to, you know, Salesforce mm -hmm. or whatever. And uh, and that's the, the, the era we're just entering now. And I think you had to do them actually in that order. Uh -huh. you, it's, so it's actually quite hard as a company to sort of change from a DIY company to a consumer electronics company to an enterprise software company. Right. But this is how you knock uh, BlackBerry out of every executive's hands and replace it with an iPhone that they bought themselves. Ab absolutely, yeah. And so you know, so you know, we we started in a garage. You know, we started as a community. Um, then we built our own factories. Then we outsourced our, our manufacturing to to Chinese factories, and we had supply chains, etc. At the end of the day, the enterprise software has to show up in a box, and that box is called a drone. Mm -hmm. um, but the value, as the prices, as consumer electronic commodification is, you know, happens and the prices fall to the floor, you realize that all the value is now in the data not the drone and you know and and getting the data out of the drone into the cloud you know turning it into some some solution that people are willing to pay thousands of dollars for that's that's a very silicon valley problem but it's so far removed from the you know literally the lego pieces and pizza boxes where we started right mm -hmm. right right yeah so there have you have you kept your uh, <laughs> domain name at, at geomapper.com geocrawler I, I, Geo 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 still have i think i have geocrawler and 1 2 and 3 i think i yeah i was it was um, yeah i think i still got it good yeah mm -hmm. that can be the repository for this data once once everyone finally gets it uh, off their drones uh, 3dr.com is the <laughs> We have a new one. It's called yeah, yeah. 3dr.com. Yeah. Talk, tell us a little bit about uh, the the open source roots of of what you're doing. Yeah. A lot of these a lot of these drones are open source. They, right? they they are, although it's it's you know like all open source is an evolving story. So I am like I am like a big open source guy, not because it's my religion, just because it works, right? So I, that's not 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 surprising. Um, and uh, you know, we were also we came out of the Arduino, so the original code mm -hmm. is called ArduPilot. Mm -hmm. uh, we call it APM now for short. Um, so we very much influenced by you know the open source software and hardware movement that was our which was Arduino, and um, that was the path we embarked on. And so the code is all GPL v three. Um, our hardware is I think Creative Commons, whatever you know. The hardware is itself? yeah yeah. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, oh, cool. the, the current one, Pixhawk, is all is all Creative Commons and, mm. and, and, and open huh. source, etc. Do you publish the schematics or, we, or? We, no? We go all the way down to the Eagle Files, and, and mm. I, I think they used to be wow. Eagle Files. Maybe they're Altium now. But, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, you know, t- totally open source. Um, you know, from 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 top to bottom is where we started. Then over time, you know, we realized a couple things. First of all, as the hardware gets more complex, as you go from eight bit to thirty two bit, and now we're you know, Qualcomm's an investor, and so we're moving towards towards more as the smartphone like architectures. You know, the, the, the people just don't have the skills to be able to to you know to remix that hardware with it yeah mm-hmm. also and, and more and more we as we as we build on top of other people's platforms we actually don't have the right to open source it you know so it's these are reference platforms that come from from big companies and you just mm-hmm. it's not, not so how do you navigate that like well the hardware the hardware tends to become traditional closed source mm-hmm. stuff but the software we can still do something about so the software um we uh, we create an organization called drone code uh, which is part of the linux foundation and this was designed to protect the openness of the software so it has a board and a governance you know process etc and we combined a bunch of other projects. So there was a, uh, there's two big flight code projects. One's called PX4 and one calls APM. One's BSD, one's GPL. Um, we have, um, you know, a code that goes all the way up to the robot operating system that goes down to, to, to drivers. It includes ground stations and simulators and communication standards and radio firmware and all this kind of stuff. And we decided to kind of bundle all up into an organization. And the members are companies, Intel, Qualcomm, um, us. Um, there's, there's uh, you know, competitors like Unique and Parrot, et cetera. There's operators, et cetera. And all of us then sort of take this open core and we add something often proprietary on top of it, and that becomes our business. Some people, some people, um, you know, uh, sell chips. Some people sell drones. Some people sell, uh, you know, our operators and sell services. Um, and, uh, but, you know, but the core, it's an open core model. So I think we've gone from open source software to open source hardware to open source software, closed source hardware. We're not there yet, but, you know, just the, the trends in the industry will force us there. And then it's going to be like open core software. And then the hardware is whatever, whatever you want. It's whatever you mm-hmm. can run on a, on a phone if you want. Right, right, right. It, it is. I should say it is really, really hard to communicate this evolution because, yeah. you, know, you know, I built a community collectively. You know, we built a, a community, and that's fantastic. But you know, now the ownership of this code is shared between mm-hmm. you know, most, mostly the community. The community owns it, um, which means that um, you know, as we are, we are. I'm a, I'm a company, and we're a community. I'm a CEO, and I'm also chairman of Drone Code. Mm-hmm. And you know, I wear these two hats, and I'm you know trying to balance the the, the two. And you know, every now and then. I'll make decisions that are like, you know what, we're actually going to, you know, we're actually going to use this, uh, we're going to build this closed source, you know, software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like, you're going to do what? Yeah, yeah, Are you, are you yeah. evil? Yeah. And the answer is no. We we think that this particular thing, you know, so we contribute a huge amount, millions of dollars yeah. into into the open source community, and that's great. But the way we do that is by building a business around yeah. it. And we try to, you know, we, we're constantly, we give a lot of software to the to 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 the community, and um, and some software we, we retain. Mm-hmm. So how do you avoid like a MakerBot style <laughs> I knew, I knew that explosion? <laughs> yeah. 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 How do we avoid a MakerBot? Um, well, you know, I think the MakerBot scenario was was um, unfortunate. It was probably poorly communicated rather than poorly chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, in that scenario, I mean, one thing you could argue is that they um, – you know, they they took the RepRap project and mm-hmm. turned it into a company where, at least to our credit, we invented. You know, I created this this project yeah. myself. So mm-hmm. I guess I think I, I think I have a little bit more well, know, moral, stature in the yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, trust me, not a lot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that and, you know, and in three bucks buys mm-hmm. me a latte. Uh-huh. Um, but so, so there was a little bit of, of you know, I, I definitely paid my dues um, in putting it out there. Um, the other thing is that, I'm, you know, I, I think in retrospect, MakerBot pretty much gave up on open source. I mean, they may still put open source software out there. I just don't know. I have no idea. But they yeah. largely they largely kind of put, turned their back to it. And we are very much not doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, they well, took their toys in my home. You guys seem to be more straightforward about like, well, where some of this is open source, some of this is closed source. These are the reasons why. And I remember when the the whole replicator thing mm. came out, and everybody got really upset. Like they just didn't comment or didn't yeah. do anything about. You know, people were like, "So is this open source still?" And then it was just kind of poorly. Commu- I think the communication issue. I think is well. I I um uh, I communicate at my peril, which is to say, I'm super active in the community. You know, just just go to DIY drones and look at my comments, and um, I try to be as transparent as possible. I'm commenting. You know, there'll be days when I'll comment thirty times. Um, the problem is. Every time you comment, it just initiates more questions and answers. Yeah, now yeah, you're yeah. in a dialogue, and you know I only have this only 24 hours in the day. Mm-hmm. So I, um, you know, there's there's I, I do try to be transparent and, and to you know, but sometimes I can't tell people things. You know, it's like you know, um, what's your roadmap for the next 12 months? Not gonna not gonna tell you. Right, <laughs> yeah. right, right. Um, but the but you know, the, the, I think the worst sin. The, the world will judge what my worst sin is, but I think that the kind of the kind of thing, choices that we make that can be very unpopular. Is that sometimes we'll use BSD license code mm. rather than GPL license code. Now, as you know, this is like the third rail of the open yeah, source yeah, yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, well, of course you're using you're using yeah. BSD because you intend to not not release it. Right, right. Yeah. Stallman is coming out and it, 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 exactly. But you know, my commitment to open source is not just you know talk. I've like got seven years of doing this and millions of dollars of funding. I'm chairman of Drone Co. We have a governance. We built Drone Company. Unlike MakerBot, we actually stick this. Thing in a Linux Foundation, you know, you know, institution with a governance structure that I don't control specifically to ensure that if I go way evil, yeah. if I go full evil, <laughs> there will be something. Uh-huh. Community uh-huh. will be fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's an extraordinarily difficult thing to explain, and and um, it it feels like something that a lot of industries have to go through as they mature into commercially stable, commercially viable industries, and in particular, as you know. Initially, it is a community made up entirely of passionate hobbyists, yeah. and then um, you know they 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 represent a smaller and smaller fraction of the community as it becomes commercialized. As you know, insurance companies become stakeholders, delivery companies become stakeholders, um, big movie houses. Exactly. I mean, we we have announced we are leaving the DIY business. Really? Um, yeah. Which means we're you know we're we're not going to make because we we had something like three hundred SKUs kits mm-hmm. and you know lots of sensors and boards etc. Mm-hmm. And that was all made in our Tijuana factory, which we which we shut down at the end of the last year because it's just not economic to compete with the, the, the Chinese on 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 that stuff. And so we said, look, you know, um, we're we're leaving the DIY now. We're in this sort of plug and play. So we have we we, we always have autopilots, but you mm-hmm. know, but all that other stuff, the boards, the kind of the world we came from. We, um, you know, we open sourced it and now it's available from a bazillion other sources in, in China, very cheap, but, you know, typically good. And we're like, you know what? Problem solved. We achieved yeah. what we wanted, which we put it technology. Exists. It exists. We put it out there. You can get it. It's good. It's cheap. You know, we, we created a market. We don't have to do this ourselves. But, you know, for a guy who owned, you know, who started a community called DIY Drones to say yeah. we're exiting the DIY market because, you know, the, it has, the world has moved on and there are other people who can do that. Now we're focused on plug and play and, you know, sort of consumer and then, and then commercial. As you can imagine, it's, 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 a, it's a tough pill for 
for some of the community members to take. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you're feeding back into it by supporting the open source project and and continuing to make the the open source stuff more uh, more sophisticated. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And we're and you know by and large now we we mostly do software because the hardware is just so good out there. We don't really have to, to have to put hardware out there for it to exist. I mean, the, the yeah. market the market works. The software side we continue to to have to drive because it's gone from like the you know the drone software which was the start, then the drone and the phone software. So now it's attached to a device. Then the drone and the phone and the cloud. And so every time you know as as the as the drones become more sophisticated, they become more connected devices. Mm-hmm. And now it's more about the data and this, and you have to do a full stack. And so, you know, although we've kind of, you could say the drone's kind of a solved problem. It's not totally solved, sense and avoid is things like that. You know, most of the innovation is now moving upstream to the kind of cloud layer software. Mm-hmm. And, then it'll, and then and then downstream to the sensor um, mm-hmm. layer. And so, and so we, we sort of feel like, you know, that's, those are essentially software problems, as, yeah, as you yeah. say. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, you know, the open source, you know, I think the jury is out on open source hardware, frankly. Hmm. Aside from Arduino, does open source hardware really work? But the jury is totally in on open source software. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Yeah, let's let's um, let's um talk about the, the move that you just mentioned from Tijuana to China. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of our listeners are people, you know, who are in the hardware business, have hardware startups. They're always really interested in the economics that go into this question. Everyone wants to know, do you build domestically or in China? How was that move for you? One number, 10,000. Um, and actually, this is, uh, in my, I'm going to plug my book. In my book, Makers, okay. The New Industrial <laughs> Revolution, I actually have a chart that, that specifically shows the curve of here and there, here being sort of local and there being there being China. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cycle. You start by making one thing on your, on your, on your, on your workshop. You know, then at a certain point, you're going to make 100 and you might send that out to some, you know, service to have the boards fabbed, et cetera. And then if that works, then, you, then you're like, okay, wow, that's a real thing. I, I, but I need real control over this. I don't want to make a bazillion if there's wrong. So then, then you often will, have, will build a factory, a small factory, a small local factory, which is what we do. And then you hit 10,000 units. Of what, whatever it happens, mm-hmm. and then you realize that at this point you're pretty sure what the product is. The the innovation cycle is slowing down to the point that maybe you're revving it every six months. Um, you know uh, that uh, the volume starts. You now you're not you now in a volume game. And you need to start to get some economies of scale. And then you then that's the time when you start thinking about contract manufacturing in China. Mm-hmm. So so typically um, so I find that you know that ten thousand just happens to be in my experience the number more than ten thousand. You should probably look at contract manufacturing in China. Less than ten thousand, you can pr- you know there there the uh, time is more important than money. Mm-hmm. So being able to do things quickly and lower your risk by being able to kind of change it, you know, um, you know, quickly or, 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 or do just in time production that benefits making things close to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I found that like, you know, you can make one or 10 things on your bench at home. The thing I've found is that the sort of like several hundred up to 10,000 level mm. is like the most painful in in bringing out some kind of of hardware project. This and is like, the uh, this is the Kickstarter death spiral. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like what was what was your experience navigating that part of the I lucked out. Um I lucked out because I I met my co-founder Jordi Munoz on the internet. Yeah. And um, Jordy was um, at the time a 19-year-old um, in Tijuana, just graduated mm. from high school. And you know, typically you wouldn't think if you're going to build a 21st century aerospace company, you would choose a, you know a Tijuana <laughs> teenager you met on the internet and only you know had not even like met in person. But it, it it turns out that you know along with the obvious things that teenage 19-year-olds mm. are you know children children of the web and they kind of get it mm. that they're fearless. But also if you're in Tijuana, factories are just something you do. Huh. Mm. Kids in Tijuana know how to build factories. They know how to they get they get equipment, pick and place machines, you know, reflow ovens, stencil printers, et cetera. They know how to get space. They know how to handle, you know, supply chain and shipping, et cetera. So he de-risked all of that I for see. me. Huh. So rather than going the Kickstarter sort of idea, oh my God, what is this ERP, MRP supply yeah. chain yeah, stuff? Yeah, yeah. Stumble off a plane in Shenzhen and try to get something. I yeah, you yeah. know, my step went like this, you know, um, idea, 
um, make um, 300 on the dining room table with my children in pizza boxes, have mm -hmm. them sell out immediately, realize I can never get the kids to do that again, call up Jordy, say, would you do it for me? You know, and then he says yes. And then fast forward and you've got this like, you know, world-class electronics, you know, fabbing, fab plant in Tijuana. And it's like, how did that happen? And the answer is Jordy. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. That's incredible. Not, not everybody has a Jordy, although they should. Yeah. Right, right, right. So the hardware is getting more sophisticated, more capable, making it easier to add value in in software. Do you see the, the progression of the hardware slowing down in the near future and making, you know, all of the remaining advancement a matter of software? Um directionally yes um so our bet we made one big bet um actually we made you know initially we made a bet on arduino and that was a bet on community rather than hardware we, mm -hmm. we pretty much said to ourselves um look i don't know whether an, an, an avr chip you know an at mega 168 or whatever it was at the time is is the best chip it's an 8-bit chip it's 16 megahertz maybe, maybe not yeah. you know i'll bet there's faster chips out there i don't care it's got the best community it's all about the community because the community creates the software and the drivers and that'll that'll accelerate we can you know a good community and a bad chip will do will do better than a bad <laughs> chip and is a, a good chip and a bad community um so we made a bet on community um but then and over time, we're like, okay, well, so so clearly, you know, you know, we need to, you know, add sensors and computer vision and you know, and, and AI, uh, that kind of stuff. Where's Moore's law moving fastest? Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the, your answers are pretty quickly. You know, pretty, is it on the desktop or is it in your phone? We kind of looked at the pace of innovation on smartphones, and they were starting to look more and more like drones. As a matter of fact, to, to use our original point, that the iPhone really was the enabling technology. But when you look at the, the MEM sensors and the cameras and the GPS and the ARM core processors and the wireless and the batteries, et cetera. The smartphones are really driving all this. And so we said, well, okay, we're not quite ready to strap a smartphone onto a, a copter and have it fly. You know, God knows I've tried. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we we can see that you know that um, those technologies are increasingly going to be the technologies that drive drones. And so what we'll do is we'll just use smartphone guts mm -hmm. until the smartphone. You know, and it will start with the actual chips, and then there'll be you know there'll be you know subsystems of various sorts. And and now we've gotten to the point where Snap, you know, the Qualcomm Snapdragon flight is essentially smartphone guts just laid out in a different way. And it's like, oh well, okay, so you know. Th that's actually turns out the new smartphones do things like computer vision and they have DSPs and GPUs and, and you know, they have things like depth from stereo. And it's like they're solving a lot of these problems for us. Um, now, you know, is it a full drone yet? No. But how long did it take, you know, Android to go from the original Nexus that Google had to make to a day where they can pretty much assume that the open market just produces hardware and they add software? And the, the answer is it probably was about five years for them. And maybe it'll be five years for, for us. But, you know, Pretty soon, we can assume that the that the same factors that are making smartphones can make drones, and that becomes a kind of solved problem. So, what's the what's the technology that's holding you back the most right now? What's the one What's the one factor? Uh, sense and avoid. Um, so, mm. so right now, um, you know, mm. our batteries. No, batteries aren't really that big of an issue, and so batteries are, are, are certainly an issue. But but batteries. So, well, let me address batteries okay. first. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. Sure. So 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 people say, well, batteries is the problem. That's because they're thinking about drones as being um as, as being a scarce resource. So like, the, is a, a drone, and we want that drone to fly the longest possible way. But what if there were a thousand drones? Mm -hmm. What if you're parallel processing the task? What if each drone has a battery life of five minutes, but collectively they have a battery life of you know, they re the recharging mm -hmm. infinity forever. Yeah. So by simply by simply dividing the problem up into little chunks, each chunk doesn't have mm -hmm. to be able to do it, do it all. Now, 
longer battery life would be better. And the way we solve that is not with battery chemistry, but with the weight of the drone itself. Mm -hmm. hmm. So you take the same battery in a lighter drone and it goes and it goes longer. So how do we make a lighter drone? And that's all silicon integration. Mm -hmm. Just 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 shrink it all into into you know one chip and then that thing flies a long time. And we still have motors and props, et cetera. But by and large, it's just it's just physics. You're just yeah. lifting weight and the less weight you have, yeah. the longer you go. And it's an upfront design problem. Exactly. Yeah. So but but our biggest problem is 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 what's broadly called sense and avoid is an aerospace term. It could be it could be um yeah, you know, sense and alert, see and avoid. These are all terms. Um, and so right now we use GPS by and large to navigate the world. Um, mm -hmm. So GPS is good when you have GPS. Um, and it's, it's good at going from point A to point B, but it doesn't really know about anything. 10 meter radius. It, yeah. Well, I mean, no, actually, we've, we've got that down to, to less than a meter. So our mm -hmm. GPS accuracy is about about half meter right now because we augment the GPS with accelerometers. We just call it oh, inertial nav, et cetera. Fusion. Yeah, sensor fusion, exactly. So GPS will get you to point A to B. So let's let's use an analogy. I'm, I'm sending you to the store to come back with milk. Okay, so no, job number one, don't fall over, right? You know, stand upright. <laughs> right, right. So that's that's the first job of a drone is don't know where down is and mm -hmm, don't mm -hmm. don't fall over. Okay, so that's that's solved with common filters and sensor fusion and all this kind of stuff with accelerometers, gyros, et cetera. Okay, the next thing you're going to do is you're going to like not run into the light the, the lamppost or other people, et cetera. So that's using two million years of evolution with your eyes. That's actually really hard for a drone. It's very easy for a drone to have. So we have everything. You know, we, we go into our, onto our roof and on any given day, we're testing LIDAR and sonar and radar and stereo vision and visual odometry and the works. And they all work some of the time. Hmm. Um, and by the way, only, your eyes only work some of the time, you know, mm -hmm. not so great at night. You know, if you happen to close your eyes, you know, blink, miss, you know, miss something. So you're, you're not perfect, but the drones have to be pretty good at not hitting things. Is there a military grade object avoidance technology right now that's, that's, that's not, good, not, but Not that I reach? know of. Actually, the military drones are, are paradoxically less sophisticated. And the reason hmm. the military drones are, in terms of autonomy, the reason they're less sophisticated is that their users are more sophisticated. So military drones, the Air Force ones are actually piloted. They're called remotely piloted vehicles and mm -hmm. they have operators. You've seen the movies. They have yeah. operators with yeah. sticks, et cetera. Um, our, our, our drones have to be smarter because our, our users Aren't, don't have checklists and, and pilot's licenses. You know, so then the third part, by the way, if you're going to the store and get milk is that, you know, you need to understand what your mission is. I didn't tell you to, I'm not, you know, I didn't tell you to go take a left of the corner, then a right of the next door. I told you to go to the store and get milk and you figured that out. And if the light was red on this way, you, and green that way, you, you, you took a different route. Um, and and that, that sort of, you know, sort of mission orientation to be able to do dynamic pathfinding, to be able to do sense and avoid, to be able to, you know, to absolutely not fall down regardless of all inertial forces, et cetera. That's, that's actually a really hard computer science problem. It's a little bit like the um, autonomous car mm -hmm. um, problems. The, the advantage we have is that we're not carrying people. Right. An, autonomous, an autonomous car, you know, messes up you know, hit something, that's that's bad. Like, people could die. And if autonomous it, if, cars are on the road with uh, a lot of other cars. So I, I, I suppose you're you're assuming that someday uh, drones will be in the sky with a lot of other drones. Yeah, although other drones, are, are, again, they're, they're the least the drones, among other things, are connected and can, can, <laughs> can, you know, can report their position. I'm worried about telephone lines, you know, birds, things like that. Mm. Um, so, you know, just to give you an example of how hard that is, um, so spotting a wall, pretty easy. Um, you know, spotting, spotting a tree with leaves on it, pretty easy. Spotting a tree with leaves not on it, harder. Spotting a telephone line, super hard. Mm. So we do have one advantage though. Um, unlike you um, walking down the street, all you've got is your eyes and your ears. We um, are connected to the internet. So we have this internal database 
of of everything of obstacles of obstacles exactly now right now that database is not really good it's like google maps mm-hmm. etc but imagine over time if you know that it gets better and better and all those drones as they navigate from point a to you know as they navigate through space they sort of say hey this is a known good path and by the way mm-hmm. this is what i saw and you can see this imagine the same thing with autonomous cars what if all those autonomous cars are not only recording their environment but reporting their environment to a yeah. collective intelligence so that every experience that one drone has becomes intelligence for all the drones exactly so you can imagine that you just see you can, you can and look at the simulation, you can imagine that these paths, as these paths like like ant trails, et cetera, as a path is known good, it encourages other people to follow that path and it reinforces the strength of that path. And then the drone comes back and does a dance. A <laughs> a that's, how, that's how bees I know. communicate, yeah. I know. Just much like the drone. So unannounced features from 3D robotics, drone dancing. <laughs> <laughs> so now let's go to our segment that we love called Click Spiral. Um, it's where we go around the table and discuss something, a topic to which we have lost otherwise productive time, but for some definitions of productive recently. Um, I think Chris was just saying that he had a very interesting one. Would you like to go first this time? We don't usually have the guests go first, but you seem very confident oh, about yours. Well, it's it's something I'm really interested in. Um, it doesn't actually involve clicking. Is that all right? Oh, that's that's fine. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. So um, this is an incredible admission, and, and you will disqualify everything else I say when I tell you this, but um, I went to my first 99-cent store. Oh, wow. I've never been in a 99-cent <laughs> store before. And um, have you been to a 99-cent I have. Store? I have, yeah. So things actually cost 99 cents. It's true. And and so you, it starts with the, you know, the cheap plastic toys, and you get it. And then it gets to things you cannot explain, like the, like the cool scientific calculator for 99 cents. And then you huh. ask yourself, how is it possible. And I went there with my daughter, who's a high school and student. And why have I been spending more than 99 cents well, on these things? Well, as a consumer, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> but my daughter's studying economics. At, she's a high school student. She's taking economics classes. And so I'm and so I'm thinking of this through the economics lens, which is, how is it possible that this thing is on this shelf for 99 cents? It's presumably, somebody's making profit. You know, how, how can you have a, a scientific calculator, um, you know, with all sorts of fancy buttons, et cetera, for 99 with cents? With square root as well as exponent on it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Both ways. Um, so her first instinct was, was, oh, you know, slave labor, you know, exploitation, et cetera. But even even that, and I'm not accepting that, but even that doesn't get you to 99 cents for a scientific calculator. So um, I was a little mystified. So I asked my COO, who has a lot of experience with global supply chain, he came from, uh, you know, Monster. And he says, oh, forecasting error. That's uh-huh. how things cost. They don't cost 99 cents. Yeah, yeah. They were supposed to cost 12.99, 14.99, whatever, but they made too many of them. And so they go through liquidation and they end up in a 99 cent store. Interesting. Wow. So it's a uh, uh, surplus, surplus electronics. Surplus everything. It's, you know, you go into one of these stores and it's like, you know, it's office supplies and car supplies and hardware tools. Water balloons. And, and, and water balloons and, you know, makeup. And, uh, you know, the, the majority of those things are just somebody blew it. Huh. It's like how in uh, developing countries, people are walking around with T-shirts for the you know World Series and Super Bowl victories of teams yeah, that, that never won. happened. Yeah, yeah, from the alternate reality. Yeah, forecasting yeah. error. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Somebody uh, somebody lost a lot of money on those games, not just in printing T-shirts, probably. But the consumers won. Exactly. exactly. Thank you, global supply chain. <laughs> yes. Uh, John, do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. My click spiral this week is a little farther afield than usual, but something that I found myself reading for for a long time the other day. You guys may know that uh, Wesley Snipes, the actor, spent some time in jail for tax evasion. In particular, he subscribes to a set of conspiracy theories that um, hold that you're able to sort of um, escape your tax obligation through various like overly formal legal maneuverings. And this this is a, a fairly uh, common argument among a certain subsection of the population, uh, common enough that a judge in Alberta 
wrote a really spectacular verdict that, as a service to his fellow jurists, describes the entire range of claims made by these uh, tax avoiders and sort of rebuts them one by one. The upshot, and, and it's it's very humorously written, extraordinarily easy. Um, I used to read like Supreme Court verdicts because they are uh, Supreme Court opinions because they're just so well written and, and just really interesting. This took me back to that. This is really, really good. So I'll put a URL for it in the show notes. Um, but the the uh, the upshot is this judge writes is that you can argue with these people, but they only choose to believe that which they want to believe ultimately. The core argument that these uh, tax evaders make is that you can separate your corporate personhood with your obligations from your soul and your person personhood. They don't recognize the fact that corporate means having a body. And right. so, but what they mean is the corporate as in like engaging in financial transactions. And they believe that you can, um, you know, divide these personalities, the, the person who you are personally from the person who has your debts and tax obligations, uh, split them apart. Uh, and basically by spelling your name differently and putting a lot of punctuation into it so that um, David would be, you know, David Craner spelled conventionally is the David who owes taxes, but you are actually David Craner spelled in all caps with colons between a, a row of colons between David and Craner. It's it's interesting. Uh, yeah, it's really nutty. And so basically, it's it's the idea is you you create one person who spends all the money and one person who owes all the debt, and you separate them into separate entities. <laughs> and it's almost it's you you have to credit them with coming up with something that's remarkably similar to some like private equity deals. Yes, in, <laughs> sounds like a, a DBA, one of those doing yeah, business yeah, yeah. as. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. David Craner doing business as David colon 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 Craner. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh, no, no. Uh, you're, you're, you're looking for uh, David Craner. I am David colon yeah, colon yeah, colon yeah. Craner. Oh, he's, not, he's not here. <laughs> he's not here. Uh, Come back later. And I can't pay you. Yeah, so. sorry. Yeah, so it's it's a it's a phenomenal um, piece of writing and a lot of fun, and it introduced to me a new term, uh, that of the vexatious litigant. Mm. So courts are able to determine that someone is just you know pulling their leg, Screwing essentially in, in yeah. legal terms. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and are able to say like, uh, go away, you're you're tiring me and just being silly. So vexatious <laughs> litigant. <silly>. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is a is an awesome term, and that is a a side benefit of reading this uh, terrific uh, legal opinion to which there will be a link in the show notes. David, tell us about your click spiral. Uh, well, last week I tried Soylent for the first time. Mm. Have mm. you tried Soylent? I have I not. I'm, I'm concerned about the epic farts. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you should be. Um, yeah, so my, my roommate um, has been experimenting with very monk-like living. Like he went all vegetarian to save money and like really doesn't care about the the, the corporal pleasures of, of food. And so, and started, I think he was just trying to make a point at first, but then he realized that like he actually doesn't really care that much and he can live very cheaply by, you know, not caring about flavors. And so someone at his work gave him a package of Soylent 1.5, which is the powder. Nah. And he brought it home and it sat uh, unconsumed on our pantry shelf for about three or four months. And Last week, we decided to try it because we had not ordered groceries yet that week or gone to get groceries yet that week. <laughs> so it was out of necessity that you experimented with it. Well, because it was just like, well, I'm definitely not going to go to the store right now. I'm starving. This supposedly, you know, if only there was some way that like I could uh, just be done with the whole feeding thing and the nutritioning myself thing within the next 
five to ten minutes and go back to what I was doing. Oh, wait, there is. Um, but sadly, 1.5 was buggy. <laughs> yeah, I didn't experience the bugs. I didn't experience the, uh, well, the mold. I heard that there was some mold involved in some of the batches. I don't know. We, we poured it out. Um, we mixed it up in a big, it suggests a pitcher. We did not have a pitcher. We had a big stainless steel pot that we put it in. You have to mix it in stages so that it does not clump. Uh, we mixed it with lukewarm water and chugged a couple of glasses <laughs> of it. It was really... I have a tasting video. We should put the tasting video on the... Yeah, David sent me this video, and, <laughs> yeah. and we will not link to it in the episode <laughs> yeah. notes. Uh, but it's just the, it's the sound of a, of a really nauseating slurpee. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, by, it's kind uh, of like, uh, as, as, as Thaddeus, my roommate, described it, it kind of smells like something you get put into your shake at, at like, Jamba Juice, except, like, an entire <laughs> two quarts of it. It's kind of like this, like, bready kind of smell but yeah i wasn't hungry anymore after that which is not exactly the same as you lost your appetite but it, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> exactly exactly however you want to interpret that um but i've heard that the uh they, they go for the flavor they try to make it be deliciously neutral is the is the quote on their mm. website because they they try really hard to make it um a flavor that you just don't notice it's it's yeah and they, they release they have release notes with each different uh release it's like a little booklet that that documents the hmm. you know changes in errata uh. from previous ones <laughs> um yeah it's really quite something so it's having like done that are you meal. are you tempted to try 2.0 i think i'm going well we actually ordered a case of 2.0 um and it should be arriving sometime soon i mean the idea is interesting we'll see I mean, well, it is as you pointed out. It is it is, it is bros making food. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's I mean, bros making nutrient broth. Yeah, um, yeah. So it it's kind of um, you know last summer at the Solid Conference, one of the keynotes was from a woman named Gwendolyn Graff, who's a chemist at Wrigley who develops chewing gums. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the demo she gave was really cool. Everyone walked back into the hall after a break and found a little plastic baggie full of chewing gum additives and components. And Basically, she led a everyone baggie through full a tasting. Of like little vials of white powders. Exactly. And some of them were, uh, you know, uh, citric acid, pure citric acid. Some of them are pure aspartame. Some of them are like juicy fruit. A little uh, nugget of xanthan uh, gum. <laughs> aroma. Yeah. And that was the thing is that the chewing gum base that she had everyone put in their mouth is aggressively neutral. Like you've never put anything in your mouth that tastes so devoid of flavor. Mm. And and it's it's unnerving. I mean, it it you you just you expect something it's a bit like an optical illusion maybe in a yeah, science museum where yeah. you're supposed to where you feel like you're gonna step down a step but in fact there's no step there and right. you just like fall because you thought there was but gonna the be a step, step is flavor the step is flavor <laughs> you're not used to putting something in your mouth that, that has no flavor in it but this truly has no flavor in it yeah but then but then she we tried that and then she was like put this little this little paper saturated in juicy fruit syrup underneath your nose and then it tasted like and juicy it fruit, like juicy fruit gum. This is like the Matrix, right? Where yeah. you suddenly realize the entire universe of taste is a construct. Yeah, it yeah, is, it yeah, is. exactly. The thing that you realize, and that we wanted, you know, people to take away from it in that context, is that, you know, creating a commercial food like that is a matter of layering together a well-designed experience from a lot of things that individually aren't compelling. So, so you start with this gum base that tastes like nothing. You know, you add in an artificial sweetener. You add in a, a mint aroma that's just you just smell it it doesn't taste like anything uh, you add in this chemical that makes your mouth feel cold you add in another chemical that makes your mouth tingle and they all come together into kind of like a minty fresh chewing gum chewing experience yeah and if you get it wrong it ends up in the 99 cent store yeah yeah exactly exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's been a great uh, great click spiral if listeners would like to send us a click spiral item for david and me to uh, to get lost in you can email it to hardware at o'reilly.com 
and then we'll uh, talk about it in a subsequent episode. Well, I think that's about all that we have time for today. This was a, a wonderful deluge of information about what's going on in the world of, of 3D robotics. Thank you very much, Chris Anderson. For everyone else out there who has any suggestions or comments or criticisms about the show or just want to say hi or submit a click spiral or do whatever, please uh, log on to your computer terminal and contact us on hardware at O'Reilly.com. And Chris, if people want to find you, where should they look on the internet? The company is 3dr.com and our community is DIYdrones.com. Excellent. And your book? Lots of them, but long tail, free. And the one that's probably most relevant is Makers, The New Industrial Revolution. Excellent. Thank and you so much. Solo the drone. Solo's the new drone. As and, well. and Solo's the, the new hot. That's the one we were flying. Indeed. It was great. It was spectacular. Yeah. We'll post in the episode notes. Our drone selfie. Our drone selfie. That'll yeah. Great. We, we took several because they're several. so easy. <laughs> so thank great. you so much, Chris Anderson. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>